Welcome to Samford University's Campus Worship. We hope you enjoy the presentation. Good morning, everyone. I'm going to start off reading the story of Lazarus. This is from John chapter 11. And I need to warn you, this is a long passage. It's 44 verses, so hang with me on this. We kind of need to hear all of it for the, for the message to make sense. So this is John chapter 11 from the New International Version. And it says this. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daylight will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It's when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go, so that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen and a cloth around his face. 
Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So it's a passage about death. And I've got to tell you that I found out the hard way that speaking in campus worship, or at least speaking about death, can be hazardous to your health. Um, I, I, Matt Curlin, Dr. Curlin, didn't warn me about that ahead of time. There should be some sort of a disclaimer or something, maybe. But so because this passage was about death, um, and as I was preparing to speak about this passage, I thought it'd be good to start off with a story where I had a close call with death. And I've lived a pretty safe life. I haven't had a lot of close calls with death. The story I was going to use was a story of when I was in my 20s, I came to follow Christ while I was working at a youth ministry in an urban poor area, uh, an area where a lot of people were selling drugs, using drugs, a lot of poverty. And a group of four of us, four young men, were living in this house in the city. And um, one night we heard gunshots. And uh, we did probably the dumbest thing you can do when you hear gunshots is we ran out the door and ran towards the gunshots. Don't ever do that. If you hear gunshots, don't run towards the gunshots. But we ran out towards the gunshots, and we found a man laying on the side of the street who had been shot. It turned out later, this man whose name was Gary, he lived. We found out later from him that he had ripped off his drug dealer, and the drug dealer had shot him. And so my brush with death was this. One, I'm watching Gary, and Gary's been shot through the abdomen, and I don't know if Gary's going to live or die. So I'm concerned about Gary's death. Um, that sounds sort of heroic. The non-heroic part was I was really scared for myself and my friends because I had heard enough st stories about drive-by shootings that I know that people sometimes come back and finish off the job. And we were standing in between the street and in between Gary. And so I, it felt a little bit like a brush with death, at least maybe one of the closer brushes of death with a death I've ever had. So this is a story I was going to start off with, and I kind of did tell you a little bit of that. But then a couple weeks after Dr. Curlin asked me to, to speak, uh, this happened. I don't know if you can see this well. This is what remains of my family's minivan after an accident on Super Bowl Sunday. And I know what you're all thinking. You're thinking, wow, I hope that never happens to me. I hope I never have to own a minivan. <laughs> it happens to the best of us. When I was in college, when I was your age, there was this guy, Bruce, that I went to college with. And he had dated this girl for a long time, four or five years since high school. And we used to tease Bruce that you're almost to the minivan stage. You're going to graduate, get a minivan, and ha-ha, Bruce is going to drive a minivan. Well... This is God's revenge on me, right? I made fun of Bruce, and now I have a minivan, or I had a minivan, say. So the story is this. I was coming home from, uh, I was bringing my kids and three of their friends. I've got a 14-year-old son, a 15-year-old daughter. They had three friends with them. I was bringing them home from the Super Bowl party at our church on Super Bowl Sunday, and a man ran a stop sign and broadsided us and hit the van and totaled it. Um, I've never been in a, in a vehicle where the airbags deployed, most of the airbags deployed, like the whole front and down the side where the impact was. It was really scary, and I'm kind of laughing about it, laughing about the whole minivan thing. But the truth is, um, this was really a close call with death for me and for my family. Had that impact hit a little bit further back instead of the front corner, if it would have hit where the passengers were, I'm not sure what would have happened. And the truth is, even, uh, even though, uh, and I should tell you now, obviously I'm okay, my family was all okay, but in the moments right after that accident, if you've ever had a serious accident, um, you're sort of delirious in those few moments, few seconds afterwards. And so as I got myself out of that van, I wasn't sure that my kids and their friends were okay. And I don't know if you can see the picture, the light is maybe making it hard to see, but the, the driver, or the dri I got out the driver's side door, obviously. The sliding door right behind my door was jammed shut, but I couldn't tell. And so I had this moment of thinking my kids and their friends were in the van hurt, dying, maybe dead. And the only thing my adult brain could think of was, I need to get into that van. And so I spent, it, it felt like forever, I'm sure it was just a few seconds, 
I just, I spent that time cranking on the door, on that sliding door, trying so hard to get in there. I was convinced I had to get in to get to my kids. And what happened was I pulled so hard that I pulled muscles in my back and my shoulder and my chest that hurt for weeks afterwards. They just kind of stopped hurting a week or so ago. Um, I was trying that hard to get in. And so I, as, as I've thought about that, as I thought about that story, my own brush with death, and the story of Lazarus, I've come to see some parallels. And I wanted to just share those with you. One thing that struck me is that death is the worst thing we can imagine. Now, and I know from a Christian point of view, there's something worse, right? Uh, and that would be death and hell. But from a, an earthly point of view, in terms of what we know, we can't really imagine much worse than either our own death or the death of someone we love. And so it's instructive when we see what Jesus does with this worst thing that we can possibly imagine. The other thing that I was struck by was the fact that death makes us powerless. In the end, we can't protect ourselves or the people we love from death. That was never more clear to me than in the few seconds after that accident where I'm trying to crank open that door and I can't get in. And I came to, came to understand, thinking about that, that I think that this is what death does to all of us metaphorically. We're standing on the outside and we can't do anything about it. And I think that's, that certainly made me identify with the story of Lazarus in a new way. Mary and Martha and even Jesus for, for a bit in this story are outside the tomb and Mary and Martha are powerless and Jesus even Jesus, the people standing around sort of seem to feel like he might be powerless too. And we know that's not the end of the story. But I can sort of identify with this, having, having had this experience myself recently of, you know, thank God nobody was dead, but I didn't know that. And so the standing outside and feeling powerless. Um, so what I wanted to do today in the few minutes that I have here is just to, um, to share three pictures of Jesus that have emerged for me as I've read this passage, as I've studied it, as I've thought about what this passage says, what I wanted to share with you. I just want to share three pictures of Jesus that have sort of become clear to me from reading this passage. The first picture I wanted to share was Jesus as our friend. And I've got a picture of Jesus holding his hand, a statue of Jesus holding his hand weeping, another statue with people with their arms around each other. I was struck when I was reading this passage about how human Jesus is in this passage. If Jesus is God, this is a God who's incarnate, who's in the flesh. Uh, this is a God, that word, that word incarnate, that root word carne, it's the same thing. Sorry, this is going to spoil your next trip to Chipotle, but that's the same thing as carne asada, right? It's meat. It's a God with meat on his bones, a God who comes down and is with us. And this, this God who comes down in the person of Jesus, he gets close to people. He loves people. He loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He weeps over Lazarus. He's, the Bible tells us twice in this passage he's deeply moved. So this is a God who loves us like a friend. He's deeply moved by us. He weeps for us. And to me, this is striking because a lot of times it's easy to fall into this picture of God as far away, as distant. But this story brings God very close in the person of Jesus. This story also gives us a little insight into how God sees death. Because I don't know about you, but in my family, there's a tendency when someone dies, and I've had grandparents and, and an aunt die in the last few years, there's this tendency for the people in my family who are mostly Christians to say things like this. Well, that's really sad, but they're in a better place, and we shouldn't make too big of a deal out of it. And there's truth to that. You know, the Bible does say we're not supposed to mourn and weep like those who have no hope. But the other side of the passage, or the other side of the picture, and I think we see this here, is Jesus, because he loves us intimately, intimately and deeply, he weeps over death. Death is never okay with God. And in fact, if you read Genesis, it was never part of the plan. God didn't create us to die. That came because of the fall. It came because of sin entering the world. And so I'm convinced that when we hurt, when we die, God weeps for that because he's our friend. He's intimate with us. He's close with us. 
Uh, so this idea of the weeping God in the incarnation, Christ is our friend, this is the first picture that I wanted to share from this passage, one of the first things that moved me. But there's another picture that we need to, that we need to deal with if we're going to really do justice to this passage. And this one is maybe a little bit less obvious than the Jesus as friend. This is the picture of Jesus as Lord. And I think we don't think about this passage as maybe pointing to Jesus' lordship quite as much as people in Jesus' time would have, or the time right after Jesus, if they would have read this story. Because in our modern world, or at least in the, in the country that we live in and in westernized countries, we don't really use this term Lord a whole lot. I mean, we say it in church, but we use it as sort of a synonym with God or Jesus. If you think about what a Lord is, a Lord is someone with ultimate power and ultimate control. And so if you had a human Lord, you were the slave and they were the master. Even if you've ever watched Downton Abbey, and I, I have to confess I was a Downton Abbey fan. I watched it in a different sequence because I was overseas, but I did binge watch it. And, uh, you know, even in the early 1900s, the English aristocracy, the lords, had almost ultimate control over their land. Um, and so this idea of lordship is one that in, in modern U.S. life we don't talk a lot about, but it was meaningful in Jesus' time. And here's how it links in with the passage that we're talking about. In ancient times, if you were an ancient Jew, you would see what happens in the world, not through a scientific point of view or through a rational point of view. You would see it through a supernatural point of view. And here's what that means. You would see what happens in the world, what happens here on earth, as a result of battles that took place in the heavenly realms, in the spiritual realms. And so if you were a Jew and the Romans had come in and taken over your country, you would believe that that happened because the spirits that were on the side of Rome, the demons that were on the side of Rome, had at least temporarily defeated the angels that were on the side of the Jews. And so whatever happens on earth had something parallel happening in the universe and out in the heavens and the spiritual realm that would affect what happens here on earth. And so the Bible, in biblical times, they called these powers, these demons and angels, the Bible uses a lot of terms to talk about them. They talk about principalities, powers, authorities, dominion, those sorts of things. So when you read those passages, it, you get a little bit of a glimpse into what the ancient world would have seen was happening with when things happen in the physical world. And what's interesting about this, and the way this ties into with this passage, is that this is the way death was seen too. There are passages in the Bible that refer to death as one of these powers or these spirits, and they really talk about death in a personal way. Um, not as this, you know, we don't think about death as a spiritual being, as a person. We think about death as sort of this vague thing that overtakes us. Let me give you an example of this from the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 15, we're told to look forward to a time when Jesus takes over the world and triumphs over all his foes. He triumphs over every dominion, power, and authority. And we're told at the end of that passage that death is going to be the last enemy to be defeated. And to us, that sounds just like personification, right? It sounds sort of like if I have a name for my car, right? Which I don't. That would be weird. But if I did, you know, that would be personification. Um, this isn't just personification. This represents the, the understanding of the ancient Near East that death was a personal spiritual being, an enemy of God, and an enemy to be defeated. So in this story, when Jesus overcomes death by raising Lazarus from the dead, we see Jesus as Lord of her death and all the other principalities and powers in the universe. And this was a radical thing. This is the sort of thing that we can't even really do justice sitting here today in Birmingham, Alabama, in 2016, right? We just don't, don't sort of get it in the same way. Because if you're keeping score up, on this, up until the point of the Jesus and Lazarus story, death has a really good record. Death is almost undefeated. I say almost because I went through last night and I read some of the other stories about people being raised from the dead. And there's a couple other stories that predate this from the Bible. What's interesting about those stories, and as far as I can tell, 
those, um, those people who were raised from the dead, that raising from the dead happened within three days after they died. And if you notice in the story of Lazarus, Lazarus was dead four days. Here's why that matters. For ancient Jews, there's this belief that the spirit sort of hung out at the body for three days after you died. And so if you raise somebody from the dead within three days, it's not like it wasn't cool, but it wasn't quite like they were really dead. But with Jesus, he encounters death, this worst thing we can imagine, worse than anything else, and he encounters it in Lazarus, who's been dead and in the tomb four days. So he's really dead. He's four days dead, and this is different somehow. And so when Jesus goes in and calls Lazarus forth from the tomb, if we were ancient Jews seeing this, we would see this in much the same way as a king or a general winning a military battle. We would see this as a triumph. And if you notice in the picture back here, again, I don't know how well you can see it, there's a picture of a, of a king or a general in a chariot, and the Bible uses this sort of language elsewhere to talk about Jesus' victory over death. It talks about him triumphing over, over death and over the powers. Uh, Colossians 2.15 tells us that Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities. Remember, death is a part of that. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Triumph is one of those other words that we don't use a lot, and when we do use it, we just mean a big victory. In Jesus' day, a triumph happened when a Roman general went out and defeated a part of the world and came back, and they had a huge parade for him. You had to be voted this triumphant parade by the Senate. You didn't get, just get to throw it for yourself. And so when you walked into Rome, you walked in with your whole army behind you, and then what was really interesting and what this passage is talking about, this passage in Colossians is talking about, is that at the end of that parade, the kings and the generals who had been defeated would have been chained up, tied with ropes, tied to a chariot, and drugged through the streets of Rome. So can you imagine just a few weeks before, you're leading an army, you're the king, you're the general, all of a sudden you're being public, publicly humiliated, and then at the end of the parade, you're led off to be executed, sometimes tortured first and then executed. So you're publicly humiliated, and then you're wiped off the face of the earth. And this is where Jesus as Lord comes in, because this is the language that the Bible uses for Jesus' victory over death. And that's Jesus' victory himself, rising from the dead, his own resurrection. But we get a foretaste of it in Lazarus' story. We see Jesus encountering death, who's almost undefeated, and Jesus wipes him off the face of the earth. And of course, death is still here, and so we can't say that he's completely wiped off the face of the earth, but we know it's coming, right? We, we know that Jesus ultimately has power over death. He's Lord of everything. And that matters for us, even if we understand lordship differently today. Because if Jesus is really Lord, if he's Lord of sin, death, the universe, all these principalities and powers, he's also Lord of me, and he's Lord of you, and he deserves our allegiance, he, he deserves our obedience. Everything we do should point back to Jesus as Lord. So I'm no longer my own. I no longer get to do what I want to do. I have to do what the Lord tells me to do. And so, I don't know about you, but I often get the friend thing and the lordship thing with Jesus out of balance. And the friendship thing is pretty comfortable, right? Jesus is my buddy. Jesus is my BFF. Jesus as Lord is a little bit scarier for me. Sometimes he requires me to do things that are scary. The final picture I wanted to share of Jesus is Jesus as king. And if you can see the picture, this is a crown. This is very similar to Jesus as Lord, but I want to go in a little bit of a different direction with this. When Jesus was here on earth, he proclaimed a kingdom, and he talked a lot about the kingdom. And, and so there's a lot of different things Jesus said when he's here, but one of the recurring themes is the kingdom. And I don't know about you, but when I first became a Christian in my early 20s, I was really confused about the kingdom. Because here's what would happen. I'd be in church, and somebody would be praying for the offering, and they'd say, Lord, please use these gifts to further your kingdom. That sounds like the kingdom's here now, right? But then later on, uh, we'd say the Lord's Prayer, and we'd say, Thy kingdom come. 
it sounds like the kingdom isn't here yet. And the truth is, if you read some theology, if you sort of, as I've grown in my faith, read some theology, you find that theologians say the kingdom, Jesus' kingdom that he proclaimed, is both here now and it's not yet. It's coming in the future. So the theologians talk about a now and not yet kingdom. And here's why that's important. In, in Jesus' day, um, he walks around and he says, uh, he says to Martha, um, you know, Lazarus is going to rise again. And Martha responds by saying, I know he's going to rise again at the resurrection at the end of the world. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. And so he says, this thing that you're waiting to happen way off in the future, the way a lot of us wait for heaven, a lot, the way a lot of us think about the kingdom, Jesus said, this thing is here now, the kingdom's here now in me, and I'm here to proclaim this thing, and it's real, it's real in the present time. So it's not just this far off thing in the future, but it's also here now. Jesus talked about this using the parable of the mustard seed, right? He said that the kingdom is like a mustard seed. It's this really small seed, but it's a real seed. It's here now, and it's growing, and gradually it's going to take over the world. As this was true for Martha, Martha got to see the resurrection not at the end of time like she thought she would. She saw it right then because Jesus said, this is here now. I'm here now. The kingdom's here now. The message for us in all this is that we're blessed to live in the kingdom now, but the kingdom isn't fully here. The kingdom hasn't come in all its fullness, but we get, to, we get a foretaste of it, and we get the chance to bear witness to the fact that the kingdom's really here and that it's on its way in all its fullness. And so when we do that, we bear witness to this idea of Jesus as king, that he's really king, he's really Lord, he's really taking over the, the world, and we get to be a part of that. Let me just give you one quick example, and then I'll close, about how this works maybe as you're a student here at Sanford. Um, Dr. Curlin mentioned that I teach social work, so I've had a chance to study social work. I know you're all studying different things. I'd like to encourage you to think about those things you're studying as opportunities to testify to the reality of the kingdom now. So if we think about the kingdom as a place of compassion, justice, worship forever, in my work as a social worker, I've had the chance to do some of those things that relate to compassion, right? Bearing people's burdens, helping wipe their tears away, pointing out a time when sin and death are no more, when every tear will be wiped away. People who do counseling, who do psychology, social work, we get to witness to the present reality of the kingdom now. You don't have to wait for the future for your tears to be wiped away. There are Christians, there are people now who help you with this. If you're studying law or business, you might have a chance to testify to the justice of the kingdom. You know, justice through the law, justice through business ethics. If you're studying for the ministry, your work relates to worship. But you can also learn to worship by studying science, by learning appreciation for the creation, and through that, worship for the creator God. So I want to encourage you to think about everything you do as having kingdom value, as being a part of proclaiming Christ's kingdom in the present, just like Christ proclaimed it to Mary that long ago day when he raised Lazarus. So as I close today, I just want to encourage you to leave here overwhelmed by the idea that Jesus is your friend, that he loves you, that he's deeply moved by you, that he weeps over you. I also want to encourage you to remember that Jesus is Lord of you, me, and all the universe. He's conquered sin, death, and every foe. He deserves our loyalty and our allegiance. He's our friend, but he's also much more than that. And finally, I want to encourage you to remember that Jesus proclaimed a kingdom. His kingdom is here now, and you get to be a part of it. Everything that we do is an opportunity to demonstrate the reality of Christ's kingdom. Would you stand for the benediction, please? And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You're dismissed. Go in peace. For more information about Samford University, check out samford.edu.